In this culture of death that we live among, we have a Savior who lives. And as a result, He has invited us to live as well and to live abundantly, to live with great joy. We should be people who are full, full, full of life. We should not be the kind of people who when you walk into a room it feels like two people left the room. We should be different than that. We should, we should light up the room that we go into. I was watching the kids leave in the first service and I happened to notice one of the little kids, you know, wearing uh, shoes that light up and everything. And I just thought, you know, why can't we wear shoes that light up? Like, why is it the kids, they, they're, they're so full of life and where did we lose that life somewhere along the way? We're called to be full of life. That's why I have socks that light up this morning. <laughs> Look at those babies. You know, those, uh, that's what we got to do. We got to have socks, at least, that, that demonstrate that we are full of life because that's who we are. Jesus Christ came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly, full. The, that, that's who we are. So, um, but, you know, the Word of God says we're not only supposed to be full of life, we're supposed to be full of love. Our Savior lives, our Savior loves. As I was thinking about um, how people judge a church in terms of its excellence, assess a church, it's a great church or not a great church, uh, more often than not we use the wrong measurements. We use the measurement of, well, there's a lot of people going and they seem to be growing in numbers, so it must be a great church. Or, or the church is so immensely gifted. There's so many gifted people at the church. It, it must be a great church. Um, I would submit to you that that's not how the Lord himself assesses the church, I think, or assesses believers. It's not on the basis of our giftedness or the fact that we can attract a crowd or gather a lot of people around us. In fact, in the church at Corinth, which we're back to, we've left Corinth for a few weeks through the Christmas time, but we've come back to Corinthians today. At the church of Corinth, they were incredibly gifted. The church was growing. It was, it was uh, uh, realizing uh, new converts coming into the church. But you know that there were lots of problems in that church. And if people were assessing it from the outside, they would say, yeah, they may be gifted and they may be demonstrating a lot of things in terms of the power of God and they may be attracting people uh, out of Roman paganism and they're coming into this gathering, but there's something really deficient in this church. Because relationally, they're a disaster. From the first chapter, as we continue chapter after chapter, the situation between them and each other is not very healthy. And uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, by the time we get to the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, says, I want to propose a more excellent way. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, by the way, we would, uh, I would submit to you that the church never has a gift problem. No church ever has a gift problem. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, out of his perfection, distributes to the church gifts according to his will. But I would quickly submit to you that the church regularly has a love problem. And uh, the church in Corinth, in particular, was incredibly gifted. But they had clearly a gift problem because they had a love problem, because they had a spiritual maturity problem that is identified in the text. And we can come to the real issue if we actually look back a couple of verses from chapter 13 to chapter, 30, uh, chapter 12, verse 31, because it really uh, establishes the key issue with this church right here as the Apostle Paul lays it out for us. Now, I, I want to uh, point out to you that depending on what translation you have, some have done a better job than others. And and I would say that I'm prefer preferring the margin choice of the NIV. Uh, I, I would say to you that in the um, translation of the original language, uh, both the way it's translated in most NIVs or in the margin are both acceptable. And, uh, but I think it should probably be translated... By the way, the New Living Translation that you have uh, in the study is probably a pretty weak translation of uh, verse 31. I, I think that what he wrote them is this, but you are eagerly desiring the greater gifts, and now I will show you 
the most excellent way. In other words, the Corinthians were all about their amazing giftedness. They were all excited about their newfound faith in Christ, but in particular, what Jesus Christ had given to them and the and, uh, examples and demonstrations of the power of Christ among them. And they were pretty amped up about all the things that were going on, all the spectacular, powerful things that were going on. And Paul says, listen, my problem with you is you are eagerly desiring the greater gifts. And that's all you're about. You're all excited about that. And, and uh, they, they're actually, the, the way you're exercising your giftedness is actually damaging relationships within the church and outside of the church. I want to show you, he says, I want to show you a more excellent way to live. And so uh, picking, up, picking it up there, if your Bibles are still open, we're going to look at verse 1 of chapter 13. He says this, And if I speak... In the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, this is the word of God to us. Let's pray. Our Father, you are speaking to us. Uh, Your word is before us. And... um, you are making a declaration to us this morning of a most excellent way. Lord, there is much for us to grab hold of here this morning. There is likely much for us to become convicted over because the more excellent way is rarely the way of God's people, the Church of Jesus Christ. We're gifted. We're busy, we're working, but Lord, um, the big challenge for us is what we are becoming and who we are becoming like. And our Father, I pray today that it would be a resolve in our hearts to embrace this challenge of a more excellent way to live that we would not be satisfied with the way we've been living, but that we would grab hold of a more excellent way for which you have grabbed hold of us. And so, our Father, I pray that we would not resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but fully cooperate with it. And, oh God, I pray a prayer of confession and ask your forgiveness for the immensity of failure in this particular area. I pray, O oh God, that you would, because you are gracious, give us opportunity, individually as a congregation, to open up our lives to the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit this morning and willingly submit to what is discovered and what you ask of us, O Lord. By your power and because of your grace, I pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the centerpiece of Christian virtues is put forth to us here in this text. And it's really quite remarkable. It is God's kind of love. And the reason I say that, in fact, it's the word, the word here, love, that is used in the original language, you've heard before, is the word agape. What we are called to today from God's word is the agape way, the way of love. Uh, which is a common Bible term for us. We've heard it many times. In fact, throughout all of the scriptures, we chase this word. It's the, it's the total self-giving love of God. John 3.16, for God so agape the world, world, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We have become uh, familiar with this kind, this word, this agape word. It's a choice to benefit another um, in a way that might be particularly costly. It is the supreme mark of discipleship. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, uh, Jesus is speaking here and he talks about discipleship. By this he says, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love agape one another. Not if you have immense giftedness. Not if you can attract a crowd. In fact, tonight, I think the, glo uh, the, the Golden Globe uh, Award is on. There's, there's all kinds of gifted people out there. There's all kinds of ways to attract a crowd. People who don't know the Lord. People who are crude and, and, and uh, uh, reject Him. But the way, the distinctive way that people will know that we are a distinct people is that we demonstrate what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, the love of God, the agape love. What does that look like practically in our lives? And, and in this text this morning, I really believe that we need to spend most of our time on practically unpackaging what the full orb and description of this love is all about because we pass over this word so uh, easily oh yes God loves me and oh yes I love God and I love my neighbor well this particular word love is is demonstrated for us here in the text by Paul with a, a it's as if he shines into the prism of God's love and in all of its ray it's amazing array of colorful lights is shone for us that we might see the magnificence of what this love really looks like. Uh, Josh McDowell describes it this way, is primarily, this kind of love is primarily an action and not a feeling. We are most um, familiar, uh, most of us, and most comfortable with the idea when we talk about loving someone, it really comes from sort of a source of feeling. We say, I love you. It sort of is some sort of uh, sense of love. This, this is not what this particular love means. As John MacArthur says in his commentary, usually when we say I love you, what it really means is I love me and I want you. Uh, that's not the definition that we have here in the text. It's primarily an action and not a feeling. It's an unconditional commitment, a promise never broken. In fact, Jesus says in John 15:9, he commands us to affix our lives to this kind of love. He says, abide in my agape. And in 1 John 4, 8, it it's stated there that we can't even know God without this love because God is agape. God is love. So this morning, I want to share with you three thoughts uh, as we look at this particular text. But I'm going to spend the lion's share of, of our time in the first point. So don't get nervous if you're looking at your watch and saying, man, it's like almost lunchtime and he's only on point one. That's where we're going to spend most of our time because I really don't want us to leave here today unable to practically define and understand what this agape looks like. So agape love is more important, first of all, than even the greater gifts because love is eternal. That's what we learn in this particular text. A very good thing had become a very bad thing at Corinth, their giftedness. And so between explaining the origins of their giftedness in chapter 12 and in chapter 14 where he's going to describe some of the practical outworkings of how they need to operate in their giftedness, he says, we need to pause. Uh, a very good thing that Christ has given you in your life is becoming a very bad thing in your midst and on the outside of the church. We need to take a pause, a time out. And we need to talk 
about the context in which you need to function in your giftedness. And so he begins in chapter 13 by outlining that there are three particular major things that that had captivated their attention. The speaking of tongues, the gift of prophecy and fathoming all mysteries and knowledge, and the whole idea of charity and, and earning some sort of favor with God. And he makes the point here that love trumps each one of these things. Love trumps your favorite gift. Love trumps the greater gifts. And love trumps the most costly of all charity. That's where he's taken us here. Therefore, cultivating love makes more sense and is more important than gift discovery. We have all kinds of seminars on discover your gifts. You need to know what your gifts are. and What's your gift and all of this. Paul says, hey, come on, come on, come on. Where are the seminars to discover seminars to discover the, the vast array manifestation of the love of God? When did we have an agape seminar? Because we need a whole lot of those. We need to spend more time on agape center, uh, uh, seminars than gift discovery seminars. The gifted may be relationally unhealthy, which renders the gifts counterproductive. Love is not a spiritual gift. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence that the Spirit is in our lives. It's critical. It's the first of the evidence, Galatians 5.22. It superintends the use of, our, of impactful gifts. It's, I, I, would, I would define it this way. Love is a Spirit-driven uh, reality that is a determined act of the will. There's both the divine and a human cooperation reality in this whole matter of love. You can't have this love if you don't have Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's spirit-driven. But because he's talking to us here about how we need to demonstrate and how we need to grow in it, it requires our cooperation with what God is doing in our lives. You didn't get saved and the next day become the... uh, champion of God's love. It's a work in process. It's a growing in maturity kind of thing. It's a cooperation with what the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives. One writer puts it this way, in love we take God's side, share His outlook, and implement His designs. And we treat our neighbors as we know God has treated us. I think that's a pretty good and comprehensive definition. So here we go. This morning, uh, I want, as I said, I want to spend some time in the practical reality of where he goes here. And um, you've heard, of course, of an IQ. Yes? Intelligence quotient. You've heard of an EQ, haven't you? Emotional quotient. Where do you think we're going this morning? Murmur. You know, I know why there's so much murmuring written in the Bible. It's all about congregations. They mumbled and they murmured. We're going to an LQ this morning, right? Love quotient. Agape quotient. The AQ or the LQ. And we're going to ask the question, do I have a love problem? Now, I don't want you to answer that. Do you have a love problem? What's your LQ? And so what we're going to do this morning is rate ourselves out of 15 because there are 15 facets to this glorious gem called the uh, agape of God. So we're going to rate ourselves out of 15. And uh, I put little boxes in your notes there so you can check it off and say, yes, this is true of me. And uh, we're going to see who gets 15 out of 15. And if any of you get 15 out of 15, I know that you don't love me because you're lying to me. (laughs) Because only Jesus, I think, would score a 15 out of 15. I don't even want to begin to tell you what I scored myself. Because you would say, get us another preacher. (laughs) So to help me feel a a little bit better, I had to give myself partial points. This, this, isn't a whole, this isn't an all or nothing thing. We're, we're on a growth curve, aren't we? We're growing in things. But, but believe me, this is critical to our lives. So let's dig in here. 
you know, love, first of all, is patient. Patient means you put up with anything. You're long-tempered. You're willing to be inconvenienced, taken advantage of over and over again. Husbands and wives are not allowed to look at each other. I want to keep this, I want to keep this somehow civilized this morning. I don't want any fights breaking out. Now, by the way, there are limits to patience. God has limits to his patience, doesn't he? Throughout the scriptures, God became eventually impatient. But his impatience is demonstrated in a particular way. He becomes impatient when his children are going to damage themselves or hurt themselves. And if we're taking a cue on God's love toward us and how his patience is limited, then we have to function the same way. In other words, our patience may come to an end as parents with our children because they're damaging themselves, they're hurting themselves. We have to intervene in some way, but, but we're never impatient with each other on the basis of our own pleasure. We never lose our patience because you're damaging my pleasure. Because patience here is a self-giving. It's a put up with anything. That's what it looks like. Abraham Lincoln, a president of a bygone era, was uh, by all accounts a good and a godly man. But while he was running for election, it would seem that the atmosphere of politics was no different then than it is now. I think all of us think, think it's worse now than it was then, but no, it was bad then too. And one of his opponents was a man by the name of Edwin Stanton. And Edwin Stanton would regularly insult Abraham Lincoln. Take personal shots at him, personal shots at his appearance. He would call him things like a low, cunning clown. At one time he even called him the original gorilla. He said, you don't have to go to Africa to see gorillas. All you have to do is look at Abraham Lincoln. He's the original gorilla. And he called him all kinds of horrible things all the time. He was, he was uh, slandering him. When um, Lincoln won the election to be president, he needed a secretary of war because America was at war. His friends found it incredulous that Abraham Lincoln chose to pick Edwin Stanton as his secretary of war. One of his inner circle, one of his closest guys. Well, the people asked, like, how could you choose Edwin Stanton? Why would you choose him? He's been so horrible to you. He's been such a horrible man. He is, he, he's, he's maligned you over and over again. And Abraham Lincoln answered his incredulous friends by saying, he's the best man for the job. When he died, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and was lying in state, Edwin Stanton came to his, uh, came to pay respects, came to his coffin. And this is what he said. There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen as tears streamed down his eyes. His animosity toward Abraham Lincoln was completely crushed by the patient love of this great man toward one who had maligned him so much. Love is patient. Love, it says here, is kind. He gives anything. Serving, gracious, useful, compellingly attractive. It says in Romans chapter 2, 4 that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's the kindness of God's people that compel people to be interested in the kindness of God. Now, you know, I, I have interacted with this text many, many times, and you can imagine that it's usually asked of me, Pastor, would you please use 1 Corinthians 13 for our wedding? And of course, I have the groom and the bride staring at each other. 
Love is patient, love is kind. <laughs> love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not proud or boastful. And they're gazing at each other's eyes. Oh, yes, this is, this is the way we're going to be. This is not a marriage text. Although it isn't not a marriage text. This is a church text. This, as we continue to go down this list and you have the little box to check off, this tests the, the LQ of Calvary Baptist Church made up of the members, the people who come here and call themselves believers. This describes whether or not Calvary is a loving church. Do we look at each other and say, oh yes, you're so patient. Oh yes, you're so kind. Love is not envious. It cheers for everyone. Not wishing you had what others have. The point that Paul is making in 1231 is you're jealous of each other. You want the gifts that that person has. You're eagerly desiring the greater gifts. You're not happy with what you receive from the Lord. You want what they have. You want the big public gift. You're jealous of each other. Hey, keep in mind that it was jealousy that drove us into sinfulness from the very beginning. It was in the Garden of, e of Eden that Eve herself was jealous of God. That's how Satan got to her. Now oh, God's trying to keep stuff from you. Go ahead and eat this and you'll be just like God. So she, in that moment, was jealous of God. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love makes others feel bigger all the time. The worst bragging, of course, is framed under the guise of praising the Lord. It's like when a couple of pastors get together. Oh, yeah, this past Sunday, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. 65 salvations and I baptized 78 people. Are we praising the Lord or are we bragging about ourselves? Now, I'm not opposed to statistics and measurements, but sometimes we're framing those measurements and statistics so that people will think we're something special. We're not special. God is special. Paul's already covered that in 1 Corinthians 4 about who we should boast about. Love is not proud. Love isn't full of yourself. Love is full of the Spirit. If you're full of yourself, you have no room for the filling of the Spirit. William Carey, who's considered the, the father of modern missions and quite a, a, an interest to us here at Calvary Baptist Church because of our partnership with the church in Indi, India, Carey Baptist Church and the ministry that goes on there. And some of us have been there and so we have a great interest. We've had... Pastor Ashok Andrews with us here who pastored Cary Baptist Church. We've had Pastor Jack Chen here with us who pastored Cary Baptist Church. So quite a con connection with us. And so William Cary is, is an interesting and important figure to us. And William Cary, um, little known, but he, he was able to translate the Bible into 37 different dialects. A brilliant, brilliant man. But um, in the... British context that kind of spilled over to, to the India context was an extreme classism. India still is haunted by that classism in, in, uh, in its country. There's lower class, middle, there's, there's so many varieties of classes. It's not like we don't have it here either. But it's acutely there. And so uh, 200 years ago when William Carey was uh, in ministry in that particular area, there was this individual who decided to take him on and uh, because he was so well thought of and seemed like he was accomplishing so much. And there's always somebody who wants to take you down a little bit. See, William Carey was the son of a cobbler. A cobbler is a shoemaker. And so this... Uh, arrogant individual with a puffery of a British accent said to him, so Mr. Carey, I understand that you are the son of a cobbler. 
the shoemaker. And he said, oh, no, no. I'm the son of a shoe repairman. And walked away. There's a, a special quality to people who aren't proud. It's a loving quality. Not only are we not proud, how are, we doing? how are you doing with your check marks? Has anybody actually put their pen down on a square and checked it off yet? You giving yourself some partial marks? Have, have you been getting elbowed by your mate? Get that check mark off there. It's not true of you. Because we deceive ourselves. It takes an op operation like this to sort of unpackage our lives and we look at it and we, we see who we really are. So it's not only patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, but it's not rude. We care for everything. One who loves cares for everything, cares for the feelings of people, is sensitive of, uh, to situations, sensitive to people, is polite. It's not overbearing, not crude, not graceless. You don't turn people off. Don't turn people away from Christ. It's not self-seeking. It's a me second person, a me third person, a me fourth person. This kind of love, this agape love of Christ is not a me first. We're not the first one to line up at the buffet. Now somebody has to be first. Or we don't eat. I understand that. But you should go when you're invited. Don't barge and elbow and beat up people to the way to, on the way to the buffet. It's not me first. It's no, no, you, you first. I'll go at the end. It's not easily angered. It has a low boiling point. Now this particular anger is a temper that can flare up and be destructive. Outbursts of damaging anger for things that are said or done to us. Now, we all know that there is righteous indignation. Jesus demonstrated it. We know that there is anger that is righteous. You can be angry, but you can't sin. We should be angry at some things. We should be angry at injustice and when people are damaged and beat up and all kinds of bad things happen. That's, we should be angry, but not quickly flaring up because something happened to us or something was said about us or something was done to us. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now there's maybe only one gender that's able to check this one off. Love allows unloving another chance. This is a bookkeeping term now. It's a ledger. In business, it's good. In matters of the heart, it's unloving. We don't keep a record of wrongs. We don't pull up on March 17th. 2013, I remember. See, forgiveness and record of wrongs are incompatible. That's the point. The Lord doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. As far as the east is from the west. No delighting in evil, hoping that everyone does right. No plotting, no scheming. We're, we're the kind of people, if we, if we are demonstrating this kind of God agape love, we're distressed by gossip or someone being mistreated or negligence towards someone. We, we don't delight in this kind of thing. We don't rub our hands together and say, oh, good, that, you know, that's great. I'm glad that happened to that person. No, no, we, we, we don't. Well, that's not how we operate. But we rejoice in the truth. Love is bounded by God's truth. See, uh, the world loves to throw this love thing. They, they, of the, all the things they know in the Bible, which isn't very much, they have heard about God's love. They have heard that Christians are supposed to be about love. Well, that's the Christian thing to do is, is to be about love. They, they know that. And so they love to throw it in our face. I can live any way I want. I can do whatever I want because you have to love me. Love has a boundary. The most unloving thing in the world to do is to see someone damaging themselves by sin and not tell them. It's not loving to let someone get hurt. 
It's unloving to not say to someone, if you continue to live like this, if you continue to do this, you're going to ruin your life. It's the loving thing to do that. That's why love delights in the truth. Truth, God's truth trumps love. And then he goes into four final things that are, that are hyperbole, hyperbolically, he, he, he exaggerates, but exaggerates in a great way to just stress the magnanimous nature of God's love. He says, love bears all things. What's that mean? Well, the, the term, the original language is, is the term they would use for uh, waterproofing something. To keep, it keeps the water out. In, in the NIV, it uses the word protects, which is fine. But bears all things is, is this idea of keeping the messes to a minimum. If we really love someone, we'll protect others. We'll protect others from harm and exposure. We'll help them that, to keep them from ridicule over sin or correction that's come into their lives. When, when sin comes into their lives, we'll be the first to, to minimize the harm to them rather than broadcast it all. And see, the world delights in maximum harm. If there's anything that we learn in sort of the political fighting that goes on, it's like when you get something on somebody, you, you want to maximize the harm to that person. That's sort of the political thing to do for, for personal and political gain. But that's not loving. That's not God's love. That's not agape love. That's not what God's people do with each other. We're not looking to ma- maximize our harm of one another. We're looking to, to protect one another, to cover one another, to help one another, to bear one another up. It bears all things. It believes all things. It's optimistic toward people. We're not suspicious. We're not cynical. We're, we, we hope for the best for everyone. We hope for the best outcome for those people who are hurting. We give people the benefit of the doubt. It hopes for all things. We believe that broken people can become whole. We believe that nasty people can become nice. And finally, it says it endures all things or perseveres in all things. This is a military term, a very strong military term, which means it, we will hold this ground at all costs. Love holds its ground no matter what it costs. Now you think about our relationships with each other. You think about our marriages. Love holds ground no matter what. Now think about our relationship as a church together. Think about our marriages in this list. Anybody get 15 out of 15? I'm sure somebody in here did, or at least in their own mind. They just don't want to put their hand up because nobody else is. You probably didn't. In fact, you probably realized, wow, do I have a long way to go? Our practice, you see, is in church, for the most part, is to cultivate and nurture and develop our giftedness, which is temporary. When in fact, what the Lord is telling us here in terms of emphasis A more excellent, a most excellent way is to cultivate and nurture and develop what is eternal, which is love. The character and nature of God in us. That's what we're called to to develop. Because love lasts. Love doesn't win. Christ wins and love lasts. That's the truth. Now, I want to very quickly just summarize What's left? As I told you, the first point would be the lion's share because that's the practical guts of this text. That's, that's what you need to take with you this morning and, and look at that list and say, Lord God, help me by your strength, by your work in my life. But let's understand something that he develops here so we see the full picture here. And, and, and with interpretive humility, I present this to you that on the other hand, while love is eternal, gifts are imperfect and temporary, and exercised by the imperfect within the temporary. Gifts are imperfect and temporary. They will pass away. And those of us who are gifted, and we all, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, you received at least one gift, some several gifts. 
So we know that we have gifts. Gifts packaged in this clay pot, this broken jar. So in the imperfect, demonstrating and developing and interacting with one another in the temporary, there's all kinds of opportunities for misunderstanding. There's all kinds of opportunities for hurt and harm. But I want to say this to you. There's three things that I want you to know from these verses, verses 8 through 12, and they are this. Sometimes we come to the place in our lives where we get disappointed by people. They've let us down. They're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're people who demonstrate giftedness, but perhaps have not demonstrated the kind of love or to the degree that we see in a text like this. And so sometimes we can get really jaded about the value and benefit of the whole church concept and our giftedness toward one another. Now, let me just say to you that it is important that we understand that the giftedness, God does not eliminate or suspend or disqualify the workings of gifts on the basis of our imperfection. If he did, he'd shut the church down completely. So we're called to function at a variety of levels of maturity in this imperfect setting and offer our giftedness to one another. So can I say to you, first of all, this. Be very careful that you don't boycott the value of gifts exercised by those whose love and giftedness is imperfect. I'll use myself as an example. Let's say you think I'm unloving. Now let's just say, I mean, it's, it's hypothetically virtually impossible. But, but let's say that possibly you thought I was unloving. And so you thought, well, you know, he's unloving, therefore I'm not going to listen to a word he says. You would be spiritually impoverishing yourself from the value of the gift of teaching that God has given to me in order to build your life up and edify you. Now, that's not an excuse for me to go on and be unloving and say, you know, whatever, I can do whatever, and, and you, you have to listen to me and all that. That's not the point. The point is that each of us interacting with each other and our giftedness that builds each other up and builds up the church is, is being exercised in an imperfect setting. But gifts are not thrown out because we are not loving enough. We are called upon to be a work in progress. No one except Jesus gets a 15 out of 15. We are aiming at this spirit-driven ideal this morning. The bar is biblically set and possible because God is calling us to this. It's a more excellent way, but the truth of the matter is we know in part we're childish. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. He's basically looking at them and saying, you got a lot of childish things going on in your life. In the meantime, we are meant to benefit from each other's giftedness, no matter how imperfectly they are exercised, okay? Second, be careful and cautious to not elevate the imperfection of exercising gifts above the perfection of Scripture. We're going to learn more about this next week, but in particular, in some circles, uh, Scripture takes a second chair to the circus of the spectacular and the so-called man miraculous manifestations of the Spirit. Let's understand this, that the Scriptures are the way we separate the real from the counterfeit. There are all kinds of people who are gifted out there, and by the way, there are all kinds of people who don't know God who can do miracles. Your Bible's got evidence of that. When Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh and God demonstrated his great power through their giftedness, the, the sorcerers were able to equal the manifestations. So our giftedness and the supernatural, all that, that's going on is no guarantee that God is in it. This is what makes love so critical in the context of God's love. The exercise of giftedness Hemmed in by the scriptural truth guarantees it's from God. 
You see, we are but a poor reflection right now. That's the terminology that's used in the text. We see face to book. But then it goes on to say, but when perfection comes, be aware, thirdly, that the perfect and permanent are on the way when Christ returns. When the perfect comes, the imperfect disappears. How do we know what the perf when perfection comes is all about? See, he says here, love never fails, but prophecies will cease, tongues will be stilled, and knowledge will pass away. Because there's coming a day, Paul says, you're, you're nurturing all this kind of stuff. You're all excited and, and ecstatic about prophecies and tongues and knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And he says, that's temporary. When the perfection comes, when Jesus comes, the imperfect will disappear. We aren't going to need prophecy anymore. We're not going to need tongues anymore. We're not going to need words of knowledge anymore because we now see in part, but we will see face to face. So how do we define when all of this is wrapped up in the reality of Christ and His return and then we see Him face to face? Now we are imperfect vessels, clay pots, broken jars, we see in part, we're a poor, a poor reflection. We see face to book. But then, when Christ comes, we will see face to face. And his love will be made perfect in us. As he is working in us now. So when the, third, when the imperfect disappears and the perfect comes, faith, hope, and love will remain. Love, although imperfectly represented, does not end. We are taking this beyond the grave. So, beloved, what do you think we should spend our time developing? And I'm not suggesting that you should drop your gifts and all the development of gifts. That's not what I'm saying. But what should we really spend our time working on with each other? Shouldn't it be what we're going to take with us to heaven? We are taking Christ's love with us to heaven forever and ever. Don't you think it makes a whole lot of sense to get very good at it now? That's what Paul's calling for. A most excellent way. It will be good for the body and it will be good for those outside of the church. Love is the greatest. Because unlike faith and hope, which carry on into eternity, faith will always keep believing in Jesus. Hope will always be the most hopeful because we have eternity in front of us. Hopeful every second of our, of our existence for all eternity. But love is the greatest because it's the nature of God himself. God is love. And those who live in him, those who are his, demonstrate this kind of love, this agape love. So which are you giving more time toward and attention toward? Your gifts or Christ's love in your life? Our Father... This is the critical question for all of us. Thank you for your, your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the fact that it cuts right through the bone, right to the marrow, and gets right to the heart of our lives, who we are. Oh, Father, I pray that we will be people who model agape in our marriages, in our families, in our church interaction, our ministry groups, in our church as a whole, and to our world, oh God, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. As I think about the most excellent way, I want you to know that there is no group of people in all the world that I love more than you. Well, maybe the first service, but other than that, <laughs> I love all of you. I really do. I really do. Because of what Christ has done for me, done for us together, and the great relationship we have in Christ. And, um, you know, when I read a text like this, it kind of saddens me in one, to one degree to think, you know, there's no way as I look at this that I've been loving enough, you know, that I've demonstrated enough of this kind of love with. And I, you know, I just say, I just ask you to forgive me for any, any way that I haven't expressed this kind of love to you or you haven't felt loved. Because it's really an atrocity for us who have Jesus Christ in our lives to, 
to not love each other with this depth of love and this kind of love. And I was thinking about, you know, the whole idea of a new year and coming into a new year and resolution and all of that kind of thing. And wouldn't this be a great resolution? I know you maybe have resolutions, but you've already broken them. It's been a couple of weeks. So it's time for another one. Wouldn't this be a great resolution to say, Lord God, wow, the splendor and the when the light is shone in the prism of your love is unbelievably magnificent. And so many of those amazing colors are not shining out in my life. And I want them to. I personally want them to. And only by God's strength. But he wants us to be this. He's, and he will enable us to be this, but we've got to, we've got to invite him to and, and, and work on this together. I, I can say that I know for sure that whenever my time is done here with you, I want it to be said of us that Calvary Baptist Church is a really loving church. Not gifted, not big numbers of people. Those are all byproducts of what really matters. What really matters is that the community of Oshawa and the region and our world that interacts with us would say, well, I don't know everything about Jesus, but I do know something about that church. They really do love. So can we make that our, our resolution together to take God's word seriously? God's agape who gave everything of himself that we might have this love not to squander it, but to invest in each other this immensity of Jesus' love. Oh, Father, our hearts are, are open before you this morning. I, I know I personally really want this in my life. I want to be known by this characteristic that he really loved people because of Christ's love in him. Would you grant that to us as a church, Lord? That's what we're asking you for, a most excellent way. That's what we want, for Jesus' sake. And for your glory's sake, oh God, not for ours, I pray, amen.